Good morning. We're continuing a, a series of messages on the Gospel of Mark, and uh, this morning we come to the second chapter, beginning verse 23. Listen to God's Word. One Sabbath, Jesus was going through the grain fields, and as His disciples walked along, they began to pick some heads of grain. The Pharisees said to Him, look, why are they doing what is unlawful on the Sabbath? He answered, have you never read what David did when he and his companions were hungry and in need? In the days of Abiathar the high priest, he entered the house of God and ate the consecrated bread, which is lawful only for priests to eat. And he also gave some to his companions. Then he said to them, the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. So the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. Another time he went into the synagogue, and a man with a shriveled hand was there. Some of them were looking for a reason to accuse Jesus, so they watched him closely to see if he would heal him on the Sabbath. Jesus said to the man with the shriveled hand, stand up in front of everyone. Then Jesus asked them, which is lawful on the Sabbath, to do good or to do evil, to save life or to kill? But they remained silent. He looked around at them in anger and deeply distressed at their stubborn hearts, said to the man, stretch out your hand. He stretched it out, and his hand was completely restored. Then the Pharisees went out and began to plot with the Herodians how they might kill Jesus. Amen. The opposition to Jesus was growing. To be sure, he was very popular with the common people. Jesus proved to be an amazing healer, met human need, and so people flocked to him. They, they clamored to be in his presence. They were even willing to open up holes and rooftops to get close to Jesus. But the religious leaders were becoming increasingly alarmed for this rabbi didn't associate with the right kinds of people. He ate with a bunch of lowlifes and assorted sinners, he ignored religious rules and customs, and then he made outrageous claims for himself. His claim to be able to forgive sins was nothing short than blasphemy, for who forgives sins but God alone? So in our passage this morning that we just read, all this comes to a head. Jesus makes yet another over-the-top claim for himself, and he is accused of violating the Sabbath, a very serious offense. Now, to truly understand what's going on here in our Scripture passage this morning, it's important for us to understand just how important the Sabbath was in Judaism. There were two observances that defined the Jews and set them apart from all the nations. There was circumcision, which was the physical sign of the covenant God makes with His people, and the Sabbath, which extended from sunset Friday until sunset Saturday. According to the fourth commandment, the longest of the Ten Commandments, Jews and all humanity, for that matter, were to abstain from every kind of labor since God Himself had rested on the seventh day of creation. God's command to rest 
every seventh day was truly meant to be a blessing, especially for a people who literally were worked to death as slaves in Egypt. But very early on in the desire to obey this command, the question arose, what constitutes work on the Sabbath? And so religious scholars began to work overtime to uh, think of every conceivable situation where, uh, where work might um, happen on a, on a Sabbath day. Some of the situations, or so that is some of the regulations that had developed in Jewish tradition were quite strict. It was forbidden to carry a child on a Sabbath day. You could not assist in the birthing of animals. You could not rescue an animal that had fallen into a pit. According to Jewish tradition, there were 39 different categories of work. And uh, these included things that you might expect like plowing and hunting and butchering. But also such things as tying or untying knots, sewing more than one stitch, or writing more than one letter. In fact, it got to be really crazy. I mean, they, again, they went overtime trying to figure every situation. On the Sabbath day, you could not boil uh, an egg. You could not light a candle or carry anything heavier than a dried fig. A tailor couldn't carry a needle. A scribe couldn't carry a pen. A pupil couldn't carry his books. Nothing could be sold. Nothing could be bought. Nothing could be washed. Women could not wear jewelry. That is jewelry that weighed more than a dried fig. Because that was all work, you see. And work is forbidden. There was a rule for everything. And again, they thought of everything. A radish couldn't be left in salt because it would make, that would make it a pickle. And that constitutes work. The only work that one legitimately could do on the Sabbath day was to save somebody's life. And so there was a rule that said if a building fell down on the Sabbath, enough rubble could be removed to discover if any victims were dead or alive, and if they were al alive, they could be rescued. But if they were dead, the bodies were to be left until sunset. This was serious stuff. And, we, and remember how important the Sabbath is in Jewish tradition. We have to remember that all this came about because of the desire to obey and to honor the Sabbath day and to keep it holy. It all began with the best of intentions. The Pharisees, the super-religious people of the day, were bound and determined to observe the Sabbath law in all its particulars. So it was that some of the actions of Jesus and his disciples just didn't square with the thinking of the Pharisees. Mark gives a couple of examples of controversy concerning Sabbath observance. In one scene, Jesus and his disciples were walking through a grain field on the Sabbath. Well, that's a traveling violation. According to the rules, it was not permissible to walk more than 1,999 paces or 875 yards. Anything more than that would constitute a journey, and that is forbidden on the Sabbath. Now, curiously, in our passage, the Pharisees don't mention this particular violation. One wonders if they were guilty of the same infraction. I mean, how else would they know that they were out there walking through the grain fields? Maybe they were walking through the grain fields also. But the Pharisees were more exercised by the fact that Jesus and his disciples were engaged in an act of reaping, plucking the heads of stalks of grain and eating them as a snack. The Pharisees said to Jesus, look, 
Why are they doing what is unlawful on the Sabbath? Now, Jesus, responding to this, this charge, normally appeals to his own innate authority when challenged with a, a judgment or, or a problem. But in this case, he appeals to Scripture, pointing out that what they did was not without precedent. It reminds them of David, how at the time when he was an outlaw, was being chased in the desert by King Saul, he and his ragged band were so hungry, they ate the consecrated bread in the tabernacle, bread that was to be eaten only by the priests. In this instance, human need outweighed the need to follow the minutia of the law. And then in another scene, it's the Sabbath day, and Jesus was in the synagogue, and a man was present with a shriveled hand. And the man's hand was deformed. It was, it was stiff. And, um, well, stiff, I guess you could say. Shriveled. Mark tells us the Pharisees watched Jesus closely. The Greek carries the sense that they were hanging in suspense as to what he would do because he had healed a man on the Sabbath before. Would he do it again? They were watching because they wanted to accuse him. They wanted to catch him in the act. So all eyes were riveted on him. And again, according to the Jewish law, if the man in need of healing was in danger of losing his life, then you could take steps to try and save him. But clearly in this case, a man with a deformed hand didn't qualify. So the Jews were looking for a way, again, to accuse Jesus. And it's really kind of ironic. There's a lot of irony in the Gospel of Mark, if you read it carefully. Ironic in that the religious authorities deny Jesus the right to do good on the Sabbath while they conspire to do evil on the Sabbath by looking for ways to get rid of him. How ironic. Jesus, knowing what they were thinking, went out of his way to offend their religious sensibilities. So he put the man with a deformed hand in front and center. Jesus said to the man with the shriveled hand, stand up in front of everyone. Then Jesus asked them, the Pharisees, which is lawful on the Sabbath, to do good or to do evil, to save life or to kill? But they remained silent. He looked around at them in anger and deeply distressed at their stubborn hearts, said to the man, stretch out your hand. He stretched it out and his hand was completely restored. Jesus was angry. I mean, livid. And rightfully so, because what was the Sabbath supposed to be all about? It's a day of rest. It's about restoration. It's about replenishing what is depleted. It's about repairing what is broken. It's about doing good, not evil. To heal a man with a withered hand is exactly what the, what the Sabbath is all about. But the religious leaders just didn't get it. They were obsessed with legalism. They were so concerned to observe the rules, they had absolutely no regard for the human being who had just been healed right in front of them. You'd think that they would be happy. You'd think that they would rejoice for the guy. Oh, no. The rules were broken. So the Pharisees were completely missing the forest for the trees. In fact, their hearts were as shriveled as the man's hand. They missed the point of the commandment. Jesus says, the Sabbath was made for man, and not man for the Sabbath. 
The fourth commandment was meant to be a blessing, not a curse. It was made for us. It was meant to be liberating, not enslaving. It was meant for human flourishing, not to kill our joy. And the same is true not just of, of the command to Sabbath observance, but all the other commandments and God's moral laws. God is for us, not against us. It's not God's intention to lay a bunch of rules upon us and to make that burdensome. When, but when, when we live by God's moral law, we are blessed. We live well. We avoid potential landmines that can bring us heartache or pain. But the Pharisees missed the blessing part. They were so focused on the details of proper observance according to tradition that they missed the intent of the law altogether. All of the traditions that had developed around the commandment obscured its God-intended purpose. It became all about their performance in order to win God's approval, all the while looking down on others who were not measuring up to their own great standards of piety. The Pharisees were self-obsessed and judgmental. For the Pharisees, their life before God was nothing more than a dreary round of rule-keeping. Keep the rules, and God will be happy with you. Keep the rules better than everybody else, and God will really bless you. In fact, God will bless you big time. God will owe you. God will come through for you because you're so good. And this, in fact, is what all human religion is about. To be honest with you, I have never liked the word religion or religious. I mean, the very word religion sounds like regulations, right? Religions are man-made. They are human systems designed to help us reach God. You reach God, you get into heaven by being a good person. Most people in the world believe that, if they believe in God at all. It is the universal religion. You get into God's good graces by being good. It's all about proving yourself worthy. The gospel of Jesus Christ, on the other hand, is God reaching down to us to do for us what we cannot do for ourselves. For not one of us is worthy. We are never good enough. There is religion, and then there is Christianity. The, to say Christian religion is an oxymoron. Christianity is not a religion. Now let me explain. Pastor Tim Keller points out the distinction between religion and Christianity. He says that other religions are formally legalistic. There's a code of conduct, and if you do it, then God will bless you. They're all based on the same idea, with certain variations. Religion is based on the principle that if I obey and perform, I'm accepted. Christianity is not only different than that, it's absolutely diametrically opposed to it, completely opposed to it, because religion says, I obey, therefore I'm accepted. But Christianity, the gospel of Jesus Christ, says, I'm fully accepted in Jesus Christ, therefore I obey. Keller goes on, the gospel is not like religion. 
Religion is, I give God something, and then he owes me because I'm a good person, and he needs, he needs to treat me that way, and other people do too. Christianity is saying God, through Jesus Christ, gives you complete salvation, which you receive by sheer grace, and then you gladly and gratefully live for him exactly the opposite. In religion, you are saved by being better than everybody else, by rising above the masses and living the good life and taking the narrow path and going the way of performance. In other words, you are saved by being better than others, but in Christianity, you're only saved if you admit you're absolutely no better than anyone else, that you are basically in many, many ways, in all sorts of ways, a spiritual and moral failure, and you can only be saved by grace. These are two absolutely different paradigms. I'm concerned that many of us are missing the distinction so that our Christianity becomes nothing more than a religion, keeping rules to win God's approval, so that Christianity becomes all about being a good person, just being nice, doing good deeds, living by the golden rule, it's about working hard to do things, to do good things, to prove that you are a good person. And there is implicit, there's an implicit claim that if I do good, then God will bless me, answer my prayers, take away all my troubles. Our worthy performance puts a claim on God. If I follow the rules, God owes me. That may be the universal world religion, but that is not Christianity, that is not the gospel. It's not about just being a nice person and following rules. Again, the world says, I obey, therefore I'm accepted. The gospel says, I'm accepted through Jesus Christ, therefore I obey. I hope you understand the, the distinction because it's huge. What we need is not a religion based on rules, but a relationship with the one who fulfills the intent of the law of God, who makes possible what we cannot achieve on our own. We can never be good enough. We can never be nice enough. It's while we were yet sinners, unable to live up to the demands of the law, that Christ died for us. We are sinners in need of a Savior. And the Savior has come in Jesus. That's the gospel. We cannot receive him by we we can receive him, excuse me, by faith and we can we can know him. Jesus didn't come to abolish the law of God but to fulfill it, to reveal its true intent. In fact, we can only understand the commandments such as the command to to observe the Sabbath in reference to his lordship. The law is fulfilled in him. In fact, he not only fulfills the law, but he is the author of it. Then Jesus said to them, the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. So the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. If you think that the claim to forgive sins was incredible, this one is way over the top. I mean, think about how important the Sabbath was in Jewish observance, how it was an ordinance of creation. Jesus says, I'm the Lord of the Sabbath. 
I'm the source of the Sabbath. I'm the one who invented the Sabbath. I'm the one who created the world and then rested on the seventh day. I mean, it blows your mind. It's one of the most incredible claims that Jesus ever makes. Sometimes we miss it in our reading, actually. He's claiming to be none other than the Creator, God Himself. He's saying, as the Lord of the Sabbath, I'm the one who gives you true rest. I didn't come to lay heavy burdens upon you, but to lighten your load. Come unto me, all you who, are la who labor and are heavy laden, and you will find rest and refreshment for your souls. Because of Jesus' finished work on the cross, we can truly rest. The saving work has been done for us. We don't have to try to be good enough to win God's favor and to get into heaven. It's not about a religion, but about a relationship. It's not about a rule book. It's about a relationship with a living being whose name is Jesus. Tim Keller imagines the kind of conversation a Christian in Rome would have had with neighbors in the early days of Christianity. This kind of conversation could really have happened. Listen to this. Think back to those days. Christian talking to his Roman neighbors. The neighbor says, oh, you're a Christian. That's great. I love religion. All the pageantry. That's really wonderful. Where do you Christians go to temple? Where is your temple? And the Christian would have said, we don't have a temple. Jesus is our temple. He has fulfilled it. He's the final temple. We don't need temples anymore. And the neighbor would say, well, so you have no temple. Where do, you, where do your priests operate? Oh, we don't have any priests. Jesus is our priest. He's the final priest. He's put priests out of business. We don't need any mediator. He's the mediator. No temple, no priests. Where in the world do you offer your sacrifices? Where do you do your rituals, the things that make you acceptable to God? Jesus is our sacrifice, so we don't have any more sacrifices. Finally, the neighbor now, really perplexed, says, what kind of religion is this? And the Christian would say, it's no kind of religion at all because we didn't get a religion, we get a person. We don't have a God so high up there that we need a religion to sort of get us in connection with Him. You know, come in, God, come in, come in. He came to us. He died for us. He came into our midst, and now we don't have a religion, we have a person. We have a person whose name is Jesus, the Lord of the Sabbath, the one who lightens our burdens and fills our life with grace and mercy. So let us all get to know this person more intimately, walking with him day by day, listening to him and trusting our lives to him. Don't let your relationship degenerate into a religion. That's a deadly thing. He is the way and the truth and the life. Let's pray.
Lord, you have liberated us. You've helped us to understand that, that it's not up to us to make ourselves good. It's not about being nice, doing good deeds. That doesn't get us very far with you. But you have done it for us. We trust in your saving work upon the cross. You died for us, for our sins. We are sinners in need of a Savior, and you have saved us. And now, Lord, we know that everything we do, our obedience to your moral law, which you've come to fulfill, not to abolish, our obedience is done out of gratitude for all that you have done for us. Lord, you accept us by virtue of your sheer grace. And it's free for the taking, and so we would receive it by faith. Lord, we put our trust in you. And Lord, how we do pray that by your Spirit you would protect us from allowing our faith to de degenerate into a bunch of rule-keeping. So that our faith is nothing more than doing our duty, which can become a very deadly thing to the Spirit. But Lord, we want to live for you. We do so in gratitude. Thank you, Lord, for the gift that you've given us in a person, not a religion, but a relationship with him. For it's in his name we pray these things. Amen.